Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter, Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Jill Manoff. Jill, how you doing? So good. I'm full of the nostalgic references today. Be ready. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see if I recognize any of them. Um, We are both gearing up for Fashion Week, which is, we're recording this on Wednesday. I'm going to my first show tonight, um, but we are both going to be in and out all over the place the next couple of days. Next week on the podcast, I'm sure we will be talking about New York Fashion Week stuff, so we'll save that for then. Um, But in the meantime, we've got some fun stuff to talk about today. First, we're going to talk about some of the information that came out of Capri's latest earnings. Capri is the owner of Michael Kors, Versace, Jimmy Choo, etc. Some stuff going on there. We will talk about Daniel Lee's new vision for Burberry. They uh, revealed some a new logo and some of the first kind of campaign imagery. No product yet, but uh, we're getting our first taste of kind of the aesthetic he's going for there. And then finally, we're going to talk about the uh, Hermes um, Meta Birkins NFT lawsuit, which uh, we finally got a verdict on. And we'll talk about some of the implications there. Um, but let's start with Capri. So like I said, they are uh, the owner of Michael Kors, Versace, um, sort of one of the the other luxury conglomerate holdings companies that are not LVMH or caring. Um, Definitely smaller than those two, which are humongous, but um, kind of hoping to make a dent in in those larger companies hold on the market. Um, So they had their earnings this week. They revised their profit forecast down. Um, Not not terribly significantly, but enough, I think, for investors to be kind of spooked by it. They were originally forecasting $5.7 billion in annual revenue, and now it's down to 5.5, which is 5.5 5.5 billion more than I have, but still, you know, for a big company, that's <laughs> something that people were not happy to see. The stock price went down like 20%. Um, so a couple of things that they, you know, chalked it up to was one, big disruptions in China. Their sales in in Asia uh, in general were down like 18%, which they blame mostly on China and um, a lot of COVID infections in the last couple of months due to China lifting some of their restrictions, just like totally tanking their um, foot traffic in that region. And that is a very important region for them. This is something I feel like we've talked on the podcast about several times. Um, China is, in the long run, still seems like a, a a real target for a lot of these luxury brands. But in the short term, feels like a lot of brands are really struggling there due to, you know, various issues. Um, Joe, what what's your take on that? Yes. I mean tough year for people who really went all in on on China. And it seems like what we're seeing is like a rejection of fashion's former direction where um, forever brands, well, you still have to be targeting younger consumers, right? Like <laughs> um, certain customers are going to age out, let's say, um, of the market. But you know, younger consumers, that was a pain point that Michael Kors is not a luxury brand, um, more advanced contemporary, affordable luxury, whatever you want to call it, but their shopper is younger. Um, it's almost like the story we've been telling about contemporary market for ages about it gets squeezed in tough economic times. So that hurt them having a younger shopper, the Asian consumer, large consumer base there hurt them as well. Um, that the Asian the Asian market fell 18%, I think was the word, um, versus America. Um, the revenue there f- fell 4.5%. And yes, I tell you what, we have to talk the wholesale element, but you go ahead. What did you think? 
Well, I was going to point out Michael Kors specifically, which I think is the one of their brands that's the most kind of, like you said, the, the squeeze, like advanced contemporary, um, not quite a luxury brand. Their revenues fell 5% last quarter. Um, and yeah, like you said, I think uh, brands like Hermes, who we're going to talk about later, um, these super luxury, ultra expensive brands have not felt the same issues or the same pressures that um, some other brands have felt. And someone like Michael Kors, who's customer is, um, you know, not the billionaire target or or millionaire, whatever, um, target for some of these other ultra luxury brands is definitely getting hit harder. And I wonder if that is going to push any of the brands that are kind of fall into that space in either direction, either trying to increase their prices to appeal to a customer who's not hit by inflation or other things as much, or decrease their prices and try to you know, bring back some of those people who maybe stopped spending because they couldn't afford it anymore. Um, I don't know which of those two is less risky. I'm maybe lowering the prices, but we all know that like when you lower prices and discount and all that stuff, it's really hard to climb back up. So who knows? It, it sort of feels like I, I, I very much sympathize with the feeling of maybe paralysis or, or being pulled in two directions of how do we kind of deal with this situation? So that's something, Jill, you've been telling us, the reporters, to ask basically every brand we talk to about is like how you're dealing with, you know, people spending less and inflation and troubles in the economy and all that. So I don't really know, but I think you're right that brands like Michael Kors, who are sort of in that middle space, seem to be having a tough time. Yes. And you see it in the the different brands under Capri Holdings. Um, Jimmy Choo, um, their revenue fell 5.6% as opposed to Michael Kors, which was the mo- the largest drop among the brands at over 7%. Versace was the least at 0.8%. So um, the higher end, the brand, the, the less it fell. The um, Yeah. But Let's talk wholesale because it's interesting. Like you said, brands are probably like questioning <laughs> what their direction now. But Michael Kors, um, it's interesting. The CEO was basically like, no, no, no. This is the right strategy for the brand. But they have made some significant changes to Michael Kors. They Since 2019, they've risen the prices uh, 25%. That's huge. That's short period of time. Huge jump. And also um, pulling out of some disc- some wholesale partners where that discount heavily. So the big drop was in wholesale revenue um, versus their owned channels for Michael Kors, which that revenue increased. So I mean, I don't know the specifics whether or not retailer they're in as many retailers. They have as much product within retailers. I don't know if like, you know, higher end retailers that don't discount are taking to the Michael Kors brand. Like that was a little vague, Um, but they're going to stay the course. Maybe they just see this as very short term. We're hearing very different things in terms of the looming recession. It could be last for years. And also what's going on in China. We hear that, you know, after the summer, things are going to, you know, normalize, but everything's a little bit TBD. Um, but yeah, according to them, we're good. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of um, wholesale and, and kind of the decisions there, um, this is not quite the same category, but recently I was talking to uh, someone from Forever 21, their their new CEO, Winnie Park. We were talking about the um, their sort of retail strategy. And, and one of the things they talked about uh, was 
doing fewer stores and kind of trying to have those stores be better merchandised. So more, um, instead of just stocking every store with the same product and just kind of hoping for the best, but uh, catering, you know, what goes to which region, to which markets, to which stores, um, to kind of, you know, more efficiently make use of, of the different products they have. So anyway, like I said, Forever 21 is in a very different price category, and it's not quite the same also since they own a lot of their own stores. Um, but yeah, I do wonder if that might be a, a route for Michael Kors and, and for other Capri brands to take is to kind of just um, rethink where they're sending their product to different wholesale partners and, you know, send some things to the big kind of luxury department stores and something else to, you know, smaller stores. I don't know. Have, have you heard anything about that in terms of what brands are thinking about merchandising? No, I haven't heard a lot about localization. That does make great sense. And I mean, the only thing that I would want to say also is if I were working for Michael Kors right now and somehow managing wholesale, I would be looking for another job. <laughs> Basically, like they said, here's the, the line. We have begun taking measures to better align operating expenses within, no, 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 expenses with the change in revenue by channel. Like considering wholesale is down, we're going to make changes to to right track our spending. So what does that mean? Usually it's people. I don't know what, what else it means. Huh. Okay, so let's talk about Burberry. Um, Daniel Lee, who's formerly of Bottega Veneta, before that he worked at Celine under Phoebe Philo. Um, he's their new creative director as of September last year, replacing Ricardo Tisci. Um, since then, it's been mostly quiet from Burberry. We haven't seen anything new from, from him, any new designs. Um, but this week, we got the first taste of sort of the aesthetic that he's bringing to the brand. Um, they wiped all their social media channels to have like a clean slate to start with. And we saw some of the first campaign imagery um, under his leadership. Um, no product, but just campaign imagery. A um, couple of things that stood out to me. The first is that they have a new logo. And a couple of years ago, um, under Tishy, uh, Burberry changed their classic kind of stylized typeface logo to this very, very boring, plain, sans serif, white font logo. And even at the time, like the moment it came out, there was a lot of criticism that it was just had no personality. Um, and right around the same time, there was a bunch of other luxury brands kind of doing the same thing. Uh, Saint Laurent, Balenciaga, Balmain, they all just changed to these super plain white logos in just the most boring font. And it was like kind of a mini trend. I think we wrote about it at Glossy at the time. Um, I think we called it blanding or, or maybe that term was just out there already. Anyway, the new logo under uh, Daniel Lee is kind of a mix between the old, old logo and the, the Tishy logo. It's not quite as wacky, but it's definitely a lot more interesting. It's a little bit more stylized. Um, yeah, and, and, and to me has some more personality. Um, they also brought back this image of like a charging knight on a horse, um, this sort of medieval kind of looking thing that used to feature in a lot of their campaigns and on their products and stuff. And the last five or six years is just they haven't really used it much. So that's brought back as well. Um, what's your take on kind of the first impressions of the aesthetic? Clearly, it's kind of going back to basics a little bit, bringing back some some Burberry things that haven't been used in a while. Um, how else did you feel about it, though? Yeah, I thought it was refreshing. Let's bring some character back to these brands. Um, they're clearly looking to differentiate. Um, so while everyone has gone to this minimalist, bare bones type of a 
a logo on on top of like you said this little charging knight um they have a word that's latin for forward so it's kind of like uh, yes. on to the next thing <laughs> they've scrubbed their instagram yeah. um to just you know exclusively feature the new imagery and they've also yes in terms of differentiating clearly the the luxury sector is like overwhelmed with European brands. They're really um, speaking to their British roots, DNA, um, with some well-known British figures. Um, they shot in London landmarks. Um, so yeah, they're like, we want to be the British luxury brand. Brand There there really isn't another one that's well-known. Um, and this is how we're going forward. P.S. Like, yeah. I mean, Daniel Lee... I feel like he has his work cut out for him. I almost feel sorry for him. <laughs> like, not really. But let's just say, okay, we've seen so many instances of brands taking a big bet on somebody who's a name, a designer. They last maybe two years and then they're out. They didn't make the change fast enough. They didn't ramp up the revenue as they should. So Burberry has high expectations to grow the annual sales from 2.8 billion pounds to 5 billion, wait, hitting the 4 billion mark within three to five years. Like, whoa, that's a huge jump. Huge. So anyway, the pressure's on basically. So we need to do something impactful. Um, he has a lot of great experience at some cool brands that have been very fuzzy and successful. I mean, there's hope, but let's hope they give him a beat, give him a chance because we've talked to a lot of designers and brands that say, you know, you don't even get your first collection out for a bit. It doesn't even hit stores for a long time after that. Like if it's not immediate, then you're pretty much screwed. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's I feel the same as you. It's a very tall order. I mean, he's a very successful designer. He did kind of do that for Bottega Veneta. They like, it was only a couple of years that he was in charge and really, you know, revitalized that brand. So it, it, it is possible, but I do think you're right that some of these creative directors are given basically one shot to make a brand turn around instantly. And then if they don't, they're out. So that, that definitely can be difficult. Um, and, and I also think you mentioned this, uh, that there's not really another notable British luxury brand at the same level of Burberry. It was interesting to me that they had this heritage of Britishness that kind of got wiped out a little bit in the last couple of years under Tishy. And it almost seems like a no-brainer to me to embrace the one kind of notable, defining, interesting feature of the brand. And it was sort of an odd decision to me in the previous years to not do that and kind of just try to turn Burberry into a generic, you know, European luxury house when there there was something more interesting to do with it. So, and if I were to, before this, the, this kind of aesthetic change was, you know, shown off, if I were to guess what would be kind of the smartest way to do that, um, that would be my guess is to kind of return to those roots. I mean, Burberry is, has so many very iconic, you know, motifs or imagery the the plaid and the raincoats and the the knight and the stylized logo it's it's all extremely british um so i'm not surprised that that's kind of the direction they're going with um 
Anyway, like I was saying, Daniel Lee does, does have that reputation for turning a brand around. Uh, maybe not around, but like but Bottega Veneta wasn't suffering when he, he started, but he definitely made it into a much bigger deal than it was before. Um, something we talked about a while ago was we never really quite figured out why exactly he left Bottega so abruptly. Um, he Because he left, um, it was only a couple of years, but it was not the case of a he wasn't, you know, doing what they wanted fast enough or it you know there was no reason given it kind of just came out of nowhere and it was very kind of mysterious to me at the time and still is we never really found out why they dropped him really quickly too it wasn't like a you know slow phase out and somebody else you know he just was gone one day um anyway so it took a little while for him to land back at another luxury house but i mean he got a great gig, you know, Burberry is a, is a huge brand. So anyway, um, that was a long rambling series of thoughts. You you take over, Jill. No, that's so true. And I, I'm interested to see. The show is in London, uh, London Fashion Week, February 20th. Uh, I was a fan of the bags he did at uh, Bottega. I mean, cool girl bags. I expect some cool girl clothes. I think it's going to be great. I, I have high hopes. Um It'll just be interesting to see if <laughs> we we need to get on this if if he's talking to press because yes, judging from why he may or why he left Bottega, the word on the street, he may be a loose cannon. They may keep him under wraps. <laughs> Don't talk yeah. to anyone. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I mean, that was the one rumor um, that I saw, and I dug a lot too. Like, I feel like the fashion industry is full of gossip, and you can find all sorts of wild rumors. But weirdly, the Daniel Lee thing, there was nobody was talking about it. And there was one person who said that he may have been fired for saying something racist and during a board meeting. Um, but again, like, who knows? And uh, Bottega came out and, or maybe it was caring and like very strongly denied that, but we never got any other explanation. So who knows? Um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I would love to try to get an interview, but yeah, they might, they might keep him on a tight leash. <laughs> um, any other thoughts on Burberry before we move on? No, tune in. Ooh, we'll write about it in the briefing. Sign up. Yes, that's right. We will be covering London Fashion Week, and we will be doing some more luxury coverage in general soon. So I'm sure we'll be talking about this again. Um, let's talk about our final topic, which is the Meadow Birkins lawsuit. So for those of you who don't know, probably most of our listeners do, but just for some quick background, um, the artist Mason Rothschild released a uh collection of NFTs that he called Meta Birkins, and each one was sort of a reimagining of Hermes's Birkin bags in different ways. They were like covered in smiley faces or made out of fur or something. Um, Hermes was not involved with the release of these NFTs at all, and so they sued. And for the last year or so, this has kind of just been an ongoing thing. Um, we got the verdict this week. Well, actually, before I say the verdict, I'll say kind of the arguments in this case. Um, so Rothschild and his legal team's argument was the NFTs are a work of art, uh, and he's an artist, and they're making an artistic statement, and for that reason, it's fair use, and they can use trademarks because it's for an artistic purpose. Hermes's argument is that the NFTs are not works of art, but commodities, and they are, you know, products being made just to be sold, and in that sense, they are being sold based off the strength of the Hermes trademark. Um, so the verdict that the court in Manhattan, I believe, uh, was that ruled in Hermes's favor, that these are not works of art that are protected by um, fair use laws, that they were products that he was selling. I mean, he made like almost half a million dollars off these Birkins, um, and that was the the decision made. Uh, 
this is definitely a big ruling because there is, um, you know, there's been a lot of kind of confusion over where exactly NFTs stand in terms of lots of different legal issues. But big one is, are they commodities in themselves um, and therefore subject to, you know, all the rules like trademark infringement and all that other stuff. And there has been lots of arguments one way or the other. Um, before we get into some of that stuff, though, Joe, what's your take on that verdict? Do you feel like that was the right move or do you agree with either side's kind of uh, argument mm. for what the NFTs are? Yeah, I mean, I want to side with Hermes and the Birkin folks, <laughs> It's tough. I want to say it's not like physical fashion versus digital fashion in NFTs. And yet I want to say metaverse NFT people need to get on the same page because the way that we're talking, they are talking about like the people, um, the connections. Zofia is constantly reporting about digital fashion as, you know, almost a... it's, it's an alternative. It's a replacement for fashion on Instagram, like do this instead of fashion. And it does read like a commodity, like an everyday fashion item. It is the same thing, it, which NFT is not quite the same. But to me, it's like, is it art or is it fashion? Like, you know, um, so it's kind yeah. of mixed messages. Um Then I also see, I see both sides of the equation. I do think, you know, obviously this is significant. It's going to change the shape of even beyond NFTs, what artists are able to do, I do believe. Um, But there was an argument on the side of the artist that says like, art doesn't live in a vacuum. Like there are cultural ties to like art, every instance, example of art, artwork in some form, probably. Um, Usually, often. <laughs> so anyway, I yep. get that. So it's like, what is the line? Um, some lines were made. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. What do you think is the yeah. significance? Nike and go ahead. To, to say one thing in defense of the artist, I mean, he did ha- say that part of the artistic statement is several of the meta Birkins are shown to be made of like faux fur. Um, and that was meant to be sort of a commentary on the fact that Hermes uses animal products and leather, and and he was arguing that this was showing sort of an alternative that they could be made cruelty-free and stuff. And I do see that. And also, in general, I feel uh, the artist in me wants to always side um, against, like, really strict um, trademark and copyright control. Um, I mean, some of the biggest corporations in the world would love to have, you know, their ability to control their brand image be strengthened. I mean, Disney has been fighting to extend the public domain length of time, you know, like dozens of times already. Uh, at the same time, I do see, I mean, to use it, another example, so the the Nike and StockX lawsuit, which has kind of been going on around the same time and centers on sort of a similar argument, although without kind of the art angle, the angle there was that StockX was selling NFTs of um, different Nike sneakers. And their argument was the NFT isn't the product. The product is the actual sneaker. And the NFT is just a receipt that's like tied to that real sneaker. And Nike was saying, no, you are selling the NFT, which is a separate product from the sneaker itself. So that in that scenario, it makes it more clear to me that like, oh, well, I, I think Nike's correct. I mean, StockX is clearly selling, you know, a a separate product that has nothing to do with the sneaker and using Nike's imagery. Like in that argument, in that lawsuit, I feel like the answer to me is clear. In the Hermes one, which is ultimately kind of the same thing, it's like, do you have the right to sell this product using our imagery? It feels less clear just with the the 
artistic purpose and the fair use element of it. But ultimately, I think the two are the same and and the the Nike and StockX lawsuit is still ongoing, but the Hermes thing, now there's legal precedent where there has not been before. It's been a very unregulated world. Um, so I think that's kind of like the significance. This is the first time, as far as I'm aware, maybe the, the most high profile instance of uh, a court definitively saying what NFTs are and that they are a product in and of themselves. So we'll see if that if the Nike StockX lawsuit goes the same way or, you know, all of the other kind of legal issues around NFTs. It's kind of funny that all this is happening, though, after it feels to me like it's kind of the craze is dying down. You know, it's been like yes. two years since big peak NFT was happening. Um, so it's sort of funny that only now are we finally getting some clarity around how the legal system is going to look at it. But I don't know. I mean, there's still like you said, Sophia's reporting on it a lot. There's still a lot of interest there. A lot of brands that I talk to still are still doing it. It's not like they've totally abandoned it, but it does feel like the the hype has died down a little. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I wonder when, I don't really recall when this lawsuit started because um, to me, it reads like, was Hermes going to go in hard on NFTs? Because one of the, um, they, this, the case was around trademark infringement, brand dilution, and cyber squatting. So cyber squatting, um, the artist had the the domain metaburkins.com. Um, and at the same time, it was reported that um, Hermes was going to, uh, had intention to, um, I guess, come out with NFTs maybe within the year or within the same year. Um, and it's similar to what we've talked about on the um, Nike side and some other lawsuits that we've just um, covered recently that like it's not, it doesn't really rub the brand the wrong way where they really care enough or put enough <laughs> investment and effort into going after the the younger or smaller guy unless it's something that they're doing or um, it starts to become more like overlapped and confused because obviously there was the, we've talked about it, um, when the Birkin bag turned into the Birkenstocks, it, the brand Mischief came out with those $76,000 Birkenstocks um, that were mm -hmm. Birkenstocks, B-I-R-K-I-N, <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah. out of Birkin bags. There was no legal action in that case. Um, I don't think Hermes was going to come out with some Birkenstocks. So anyway, <laughs> right. Um, like what, what is that's the definitely an interesting element. I mean, I, I know from talking to some lawyers about this kind of stuff that a big factor is the potential for confusion. Is someone, is someone seeing the meta Birkins going to reasonably think that Hermes is involved or an Hermes is selling these? This came up actually when I was writing about, um, Haley Bieber's skincare brand road being named road when there's already a fashion brand in existence called road and yeah it's the same thing it's like is is somebody going to see this and think that these two are involved and the argument that i agree with is that beauty and fashion are pretty close and they're closely related whereas if there was a company called road and they made tires it's like okay this is probably not the same company the, the potential for confusion is less um and so even if hermes doesn't make nfts or is not as big into nfts uh as you know, as they might be, a lot of fashion brands are, and it is not in unreasonable that someone might see that and think that this is a legit Hermes-involved product. So because of that, I, I don't think Hermes ne even needs to have a lot of investment in NFTs themselves in order to make that argument. Um, yeah, anyway, that's my thought. <laughs> right on. And I have to tell you, um, you know, 
It's funny. Uh, Ian Rogers, we've talked to a lot from LVMH, had this great quote in a New York Times article about this. And he was saying, um, maybe this hit too close to home for the brand. And he was saying, luxury people should understand NFTs because they're in the business of explaining why someone should spend $18,000 on a bag. They should you know, <laughs> understand why somebody would want to pay $3,000 for an NFT. And um, anyway, just basically understand it more. Basically, why do they care so much also? that That is such a good point that someone could be like, why would you spend $3,000 on a, a JPEG when you could spend $3,000 on a T-shirt instead? And it's like, the at least the latter is a real thing that you can own. And, and that's a stronger argument to me, but it's still, ultimately it's still, they're both kind of ridiculous. Um, cool. Well, I think that's all the time we have uh, today. This was a very fun episode. Thank you, Jill, as always, for being on here. Um, for those of you listening at home, please, if you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and a review, whether that's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. That helps us out a whole lot. Um, and you should also subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because every Friday we do the Week in Review, um, usually me and Jill, but sometimes me and other members of the Glossy team. And every Wednesday, either Jill or I are interviewing cool, interesting people in the fashion industry. Um, Jill, who's our next guest? It's so good. I had a girl crush. Um, Natasha Oakley of Monday Swimwear, also CEO of a jewelry brand. This is a newer venture, but also CEO of the Pilates class. And anyway, she is so mm. smart, so cool. Natasha Oakley, check it out. Yeah, be on the lookout for that episode. Um, thanks again, Jill, for being here. And for those of you listening, thank you for listening. Yeah.